Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys. I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. Today, I'm joined by a friend of the show, Razib Khan. You can follow him at razib.substack.com for his unsupervised learning newsletter. Also joining us today is America's sweetheart, Josiah Neely. <laughs> so today's show is going to be just a little bit different. Uh, part of the reason that we uh, are having the show this way is that Josiah has taunted us a few times that if we had just listened to him and put him in charge, that we would have had a, a, a much better result in the way we've handled COVID. And so Josiah is going to roll out his ideas of how we should have handled COVID and maybe where we should go from here. But uh, we also wanted to bring back Razib because he's been on the show several times on this on this type of topic and I just wanted to continue the conversation. And so at this point, we're about a year into the pandemic. And sadly, we have had over 400,000 American lives lost. And Josiah, just to get us started, what is it that you would have done if you had been in charge with all the control that you need, what would you have done differently in responding to COVID-19? Yes. Uh, and I should say that it's, you know, the, the issue with COVID is still not over. President Biden just today, as we record this, was giving a speech saying there were going to be over 600,000 deaths and there was nothing we could do to change the course of the pandemic in the coming months. And, you know, I, I'm not a... Ego. I, I don't think I'm a very egotistical person generally, at least in the in terms of like if you say to me if you were in charge, would you be able to do a better job? Most of the time, I would say no, no, I probably wouldn't. But I will say that the offer still stands. I I can when Biden says we can't do anything about this for the next for you know over the next several months, I could do something about it, right? And I don't particularly think that I'm uh, incredibly insightful. So as I look at as I look at our response. Uh, over the past year, uh, it has been, uh, in my opinion, pretty bad and pretty disheartening. Um, it has not been uniquely bad. Uh, in fact, the United States looks, if you compare the United States to, say, European countries, then uh, we look pretty, pretty normal. You know, we're, I think we're, we have fewer per capita deaths than, than Italy, than Belgium, than the Czech Republic, than the UK, uh, and even even countries, you know, where we do have more deaths than like Switzerland or whatnot, uh, it's not hugely more. It would still be pretty awful even if we had their per capita deaths. And of course, the situation's not over yet. I also recognize that, you know, they say hindsight is twenty twenty. Um, I don't. So one of the reasons that I feel kind of confident in saying that I could have been a, done a better job is that most of the things I think we should have done are things that I thought we should have done at the time. <laughs> so the the first the very first thing that I think we started out doing a, a decent job on and then we just kind of let it slide. You know, when you have a a virus, a respiratory illness, a con- infectious disease that is spreading throughout the world, you want to try the first the the very first thing you want to do is you want to keep it out of your country, right? This is something that has successfully been done in Taiwan, right? They imposed travel restrictions and have basically been able to, you know, for an entire year, live life almost normally and have almost zero COVID deaths or COVID infections because they have travel restrictions. People who come, you know, are not, anyone who wants to come into the country has to be quarantined and they have to be tested and so on and so forth. And we did do that pretty early on for China. I think that was good that we did that for China. I think that worked. Uh, I think part of the evidence that it worked is that when they later tracked the infections in the United States, they were all coming not from China, but through Europe, right? So that's an indication that, you know, we, we had it there. But then having done that with China, we just kind of didn't do anything else, even though we knew that the virus was in other places. So one thing, you know, particularly by mid to late, February, when it was clear that there were big outbreaks, not only in, uh, you know, some other Asian countries, but in places like Iran and Italy, we should have done travel restrictions for pretty much everywhere. And we, we didn't do that. And I think that really 
cost us. So if I hear you right, you're saying the Trump administration, of all administrations, actually had two lacks of rules on travel. Yes, it was it was it was kind of a a very strange turn of events that a famous xenophobe and germaphobe <laughs> <laughs> Kind of of all people, the person you would think would be like, you know, willing to bring the hammer down to restrict travel, you know, uh, because of some disease. Yeah, he didn't he didn't really do it. He did do it. He did do the early thing with China. That was good. But, you know, it was not nearly it was not nearly what it what it should have been. But, you know, I can't uh, disagree um, on a high level with anything Josiah said. Um, I will like let's let's think back to February of uh, of 2020. You know, I think some of us were in a state of panic while the world around us kept moving here in the United States, there was talk that, you know, we should not be concerned about COVID-19 because that's xenophobic, uh, xenophobic, racist, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think the Trump administration and Trump himself was worried about backlash due to that. Uh, I don't think they would care about that. Um, I think there are other variables going on, probably. Uh, they were hoping for the best. But, you know, uh, it's not like the public health authorities were saying we should clamp on travel restrictions. They didn't want to do it. New York Times had an article about it, which interviewed the you know people in public health. And they basically admitted that it was a faith-based policy and it was due to an outbreak of bubonic plague in India in the 1990s. And they didn't want to disincentivize, you know, countries from reporting uh, their outbreaks. And, and India seemed to have been punished and they did, you know, they, again, this was like a bank shot issue where they didn't really have any grounds to say that um, travel restrictions don't work, which is, you know, something like, you know, Ezra Klein, who's kind of the voice of authority. I mean, he said that, you know, I, mean, I vaguely remember him tweeting that out just because that's what they said during the Ebola pandemic, too, or not the pandemic, but the Ebola epidemic um, that broke out during the Obama administration. So they just like they stuck to the play card, or, you know, th that that playbook. Um, another thing that I would say is something that Australia did, which I think we should have done, and Josiah tells me this is constitutional, you guys are lawyers. We can't just, I mean, we're too big. We would incubate internally. I, I just doubt that we could keep it out like Taiwan in the same way. We need to do serious internal travel restrictions because what that does is it chops up the pool. Um, it's just like basic math, basic evolution. Like when you have like a huge, massive pool just sloshing together, uh, sometimes evolution can happen much faster because there can be like exchange and flow and things that are beneficial quote unquote sweep through the whole population well if you chop it up that slows it down and so if we had chopped it up and um, prevented the great scattering of the new york city diaspora uh in march for example uh, march to april uh, i'm sure i mean Actually, like, no, I'm not sure. Like, they've done phylogenetic work. Like, it looks like New York City um, helped seed the rest of the country. And if we had done some travel restrictions, that probably would have slowed it down. All of this stuff would not. I don't think we. I'm going to be entirely frank. I don't think we have the state capacity to crush and contain uh, like China did. And we are not. Like, Australia is a big country. It's the United States, but it's got 10% as many people, and they're all on this external fringe with a great desert in the middle. So that means that makes like internal controls a lot easier. Uh, Western Australia and Perth is uh, pretty normal. The clubs are hopping and, and you know, they're, they're narking on anyone that comes from Sydney, like stuff is going on there. So, you know, we're not going to get to that level, but you know, we're at 400 K right now. Um, last February, I did a back of the envelope calculation, which I thought was crazy and pessimistic um, that we would hit 500,000. And I kind of denied it and was hoping we would stick to 100 for a while. We're going to go above 500. It, it, this, it, the inertia is just too strong. So this is where we're at. And I think um, on the margin, we could have changed a lot of things by border controls and internal controls of uh, population movement. And it turns out that, you know, biotechnology works. You know, the mRNA vaccines like were developed very fast. And can you imagine a situation where we had, say, 100,000 deaths now and the vaccines are, you know, three to six months out to get to enough of the population that will really have a big impact? Like, you know, we're talking hundreds of thousands of deaths that we quote unquote left on the table. That's how I'm feeling right now. OK, so obviously we're talking about checks at the international borders and then and then checks internally. What other sort of early pandemic uh, sort of almost, I guess you'd say, non-technological protocols could we have adopted, Josiah? Yeah. So here is, I think, a big thing uh, that was both both a, a 
physical screw up and then a regulatory screw up early on. It has to do with testing. So, you know, obviously the ability to test people and see if they have the virus and where it's spreading and how fast and how far, you know, it's hugely important if you're if you're trying to contain it, especially in the early stages before it just gets out of control. And the United States, uh, the CDC, we made the decision early on that we were going to develop our own test, right? There was an existing test out there. I think it was from Germany. And our view was that we did not feel that test was accurate enough. We wanted to make a more accurate test. Uh, I think there, you know, that that's a debatable proposition of whether they should have done that. Um, you, you know, there's trade-offs between accuracy and having something that you can use rapidly. The the first problem that happened is we developed our own test, but we screwed it up. The test ended up becoming itself contaminated with uh, COVID. Uh, and so the test didn't work. And, you know, that like, I'm not, I'm not a scientist. I, I, I can't say that I, I would have been able to stop that. But the, the, the real problem, the screw up happened that Having realized that the test we created didn't work, CDC and FDA made the decision to basically shut down all state-based testing. And so back in February, there's actually, there's a pretty good article in the New York Times about this called The Lost Month. It came out, I think, in the end of March, and it details exactly what happened. So when they realized that the test wasn't working right, they basically said that all covid Tests had to be run by the CDC's own labs, uh, and that that meant a couple things. One, it meant that if you were in California or New York or or Florida or wherever, and you had someone who you thought might have COVID, you know, you swab them, and then you have to physically mail that sample across the country to the lab for them to to analyze it. Uh, so that that means that it's radically slowed. You know, you're very very much slowing down the length of time between when you test somebody and when you find out whether they have it or not, which is important because what you want to do is you want to find out, well, not only does this person have COVID, but who might they have exposed, you know, who, who else might have exposed. The, the bigger problem is because all the tests had to be run through this, the CDC labs, that, that vastly limited the number of tests you could do. So in February, it, throughout the entire United States, we were doing about 100 tests a day, right? So two per state. Uh, that meant that our ability to kind of see the progress of the virus was completely gone. Uh, and in fact, uh, it, you know, in order to deal with that, the CDC and the FDA, I mean, they, they imposed really stringent restrictions on who could even be tested. And I want to ask about that because, uh, because it seems to me, I, and again, I'm, I'm no scientist, but I want to get both of your opinion on, on that part, the, the, the protocols about testing we were only testing people that had all the signs that they had COVID and would, and a test that they'd actually been exposed to it. What do, what do each of you think about that? Should we have been testing people that had no signs of COVID? What would have been the right, the logical thing to do there? Yeah. So, and I just want to be clear about what the protocols were. If, if a person, it was not sufficient uh, in order to test somebody, it was not sufficient that they had COVID symptoms, right? They had to have COVID symptoms. But they also had to either have recently traveled from China or have been in contact with someone who had already tested positive, right? And that's, that's important because when you're in the early stages of, a, of an outbreak, one of, the big, uh, one of the big thresholds is when you have you know, what's known as community spread, right? And that is when you find someone who has the disease and you can't figure out where they got it from, right? There, there's no... They're not, they're not traceable back to the point of origin. And those protocols rule out the ability to detect community spread, right? Because everybody, in order to be tested, you already have to have a known transmission path. Uh, and so that, you know, that, that effectively means that you are not able, you know, you're kind of looking for the virus uh, under the lamppost, as it were. No, um, yeah, that's really true. So uh, another thing um, is, so a technical issue with the test is, uh, so from what I remember just, you know, reading and like some do documentary, I watched the Gibney documentary for a Quillette review. The test had like three parts and the third part was messed up. And so they didn't want to approve the test, but it was probably actually informationally usable with the two parts. 
So the CDC had a problem where they had some internal procedure where they're like, oh, well, the test is one-third failed, so therefore we're not going to use it. We're just going to start from scratch. But the reality is, I mean, an imperfect test at scale is far better than a perfect test that doesn't exist. So, I mean, like, this is these are the kind of trade offs where it's like, um, you know, the, you know, this a lot of the listeners probably are are um, they're libertarians. Uh, I mean, um, there are lots of aspects of this that are just like, okay, like libertarians are going to talk about this and write about this for decades because the CDC response was CDC and FDA. Um, there were exchanges between the CDC and FDA about a variety of things. Uh, medical tests, for example, I think go through the FDA approval. Anyway, um, they were so slow. Emails, meetings had to be had. But um, this is an exponential growing pandemic, which means every day mattered. Like if you want to crush and contain it, it, it mattered on the scale of days. And they were waiting weeks. Um, they're like, well, you know, we'll get back to you in five days. It's like, okay, five days in an exponential pandemic is ridiculous, right? So um, that month of February, that was the lost month. But in bureaucratic time, it was actually not that slow, I think. Um, this stuff happens in this sort of bureaucracy that's not nimble. What they really needed to do was delegate authority to localities. Um, you know, University of Washington famously just said F you, and they started testing. Right. Yeah, and Stanford had, I think, 150,000 test kits of the less accurate so-called test. So it's not that – it really was a question of, you know, uh, it, well, the, this, this you know, highly accurate test that we tried to develop doesn't work, and so therefore we're not going to use anything, uh, even though we have good enough – yeah. Well, so and like let's let's think about this like for the listener. Like let's say you want a 99% accurate test. And so it's like, you know, 1% false positive, blah blah blah. That's great. But um you don't have that and you have hundreds of thousands. Let's say you have like 100,000 90% accurate tests. Yes, uh, a 10% false positive isn't great, but you're going to if you have 100,000, you can test people multiple times. So these are the kind of like simple trade-offs that I think people are automatically thinking of. And a lot of the test and trace um, methodologies that people are promoting out there have to do with relatively cheap, simple tests that aren't like exactly the most accurate. But if you do it in large scale, large numbers, it can overwhelm the, you know, the pandemic. It can overwhelm the spread. The logic is simple, but for some reason, that's not persuasive to the people at the CDC. Um, I, I, I will say, um, and I've been saying this to the people you know, like the liberals or the Democrats or whatever, they want to blame the Trump administration and then say, like, let's say you're like, you know, libertarian-leaning Republican or you're a MAGA person, you just want to blame the CDC. When I've looked at it, it looks like there's a lot of blame to go around, okay? If Donald Trump... So, I mean, I have friends who are pro-Trump and they're like, well, nobody would have listened to him if he had, you know, whatever, like, gone all in in early February. And, uh, you know, I kind of see where they're coming from but like donald trump has said a lot of things and people have just jumped you know i mean there's there's a whole world out there that would have been like okay well he says this is a big deal so i'm gonna put the mask on i'm gonna do this so I mean, he could have made a difference obviously with the cdc they did bureaucratic like you know same old same old and they just were not prepared this is this is you know Taleb says it's a white swan, like it was expected, predictable. Turchin says the same thing. But, you know, this is not their typical workaday problem that they have with infectious diseases. You know, like they have a base rate problem, as I think Josiah would say. Let me ask this. Uh, either one of you can answer this. Uh, if, if we would have had 10 times as many tests available and actually administered in February, what difference would that have made? What would, he, what would we have learned and how would how would we have treated actual patients differently at that point? Sure. So I think there's a tests are useful uh, in several different ways, right? So uh, the most obvious way is diagnostic for the individual person, you know, so you know, okay, this person has COVID and, you know, whatever uh, we know about treating them, that can be useful in that. But uh, particularly with a pandemic, there are other very important roles that testing can play. One of those has to do with uh, surveillance, right? So you know, it's, it's, it's hard for us to remember now, 
But, you know, back in early March, you know, late, uh, late February, we just had no idea where the virus was and in what levels, right? In fact, you know, uh, New York obviously ended up getting hit far hard, harder than anywhere else in the country. You know, I don't think they had their first uh, confirmed COVID case until March, right? If you, if you go back early on, everyone was really concerned about the West Coast, you know, Seattle, uh, California. And so that's that's one thing is that if you're able to, you know, surveil, you can tell, okay, we know where the virus is and where it isn't because there obviously were some parts of the country, you know, back in March where, uh, you know, the prevalence of COVID was pretty minimal, right? But we didn't know that because we didn't have any tests. We couldn't, you know, uh, and so that, you know, the, the lockdown issue, I think, has become like, you know, uh, very polarized and, and people have a lot of strong opinions about that. But one of the reasons why every, you know, pretty much everywhere was forced into lockdown is because you didn't know, right? You didn't know where the virus was and, and, and where it wasn't. Uh, another another very important thing, though, is beyond just knowing where it is, you know, Rizzi mentioned the exponential growth, right? So I, you know, I, I get COVID, I give it to both of you, you give it to two people each, and so on and so forth, right? Very quickly, you start to add up. But if I get tested, and I find out that I have COVID before I infect other people, then that, that break, you know, breaking that chain can result in thousands of fewer cases over the course of the pandemic, right? So ultimately, you know, and if you start out, if, if you have enough testing, when the number of cases is small enough, you could stop the, the outbreak, you could squish it, right? That's what they've done in Australia and New Zealand and uh, some other places like that. Um, you, you, and, you know, uh, obviously that's a difficult thing to maintain over the months. But even if you only, you know, let's say that you, you just delay it by three, four months, right? If we were to go back a couple months, you know, you're talking about hundreds of thousands of lives, right? Yeah. Of course, the pandemic. Um, so that, uh, that's, uh, that's another thing. And then there's a, there, there is a final thing, which I think we have done a decent job of, uh, that you can use testing to try and figure out exactly how the disease transmits, right? So if we think back during the early part of the disease, there was a lot of concern about uh, the virus being spread through touching surfaces, right? We didn't know right. if it was going to be a major vector or not. Through uh, testing and contract tracing, I think it's become pretty clear that's not a major vector. Uh, we also, indoor dining seems to be a big um, vector for transmission. That's something that we've learned through testing and contact tracing. So that's that's kind of a long-winded way of saying that there's a bunch of different things that you can use the test for that can be very powerful. Well, I mean, what concrete difference uh, would would that have made um, if we had, let's say that we had tests around like February 1st? Uh, New York was seeded in the first half of February thanks to its uh, public health um, public health city count, public health guy on the city council, uh, Mr. Levine, I believe, um, cheering um, going to New Year's Day parades in solidarity with, uh, you know, Chinatown businesses and, um, you know, against racism and stuff like that. But, I mean, if there were tests that were out there tracing and figuring out that there were multiple seating events, New York might not have blown up immediately um, in March and April as this kind of, like, singular thing that happened. New York, New Jersey, the nursing homes. I mean... I don't think that that was inevitable as a law of nature. Like there was some, you know, Cuomo nursing homes, no ability to trace. Uh, the fact that New York is our great cosmopolitan city all came together, resulted in an early explosion where tens of thousands of people died. So, I mean, I think that would have been one big change. So beyond beyond the actual trace testing and tracing, before there's an actual vaccine, what what other steps could we should we have been doing? So, the, I mean, the only other big thing that I have until, you know, before we get to the vaccine has to do with the way that we used the lockdowns. Um, and, you know, uh, I, I think that the 
purpose of a lockdown, uh, well, I, so there's different justifications for why people wanted to use the lockdowns, right? Um, I think where one thing that we have learned is that the lockdowns can be very useful for a little bit, but people get tired of them and, you know, you start to lose compliance and other things intervene. Uh, and so my view, I, th- I think there's, there's two things that I would have done differently. First is if you're going to do a lockdown, do as strict and severe a lockdown as you can for a limited amount of time to try and get the, your case down, your case numbers down to uh, a small number where they can be, you know, adequately dealt with through other means uh, and then, and then stop it. And if you do have to do, you know, kind of the, the more, you know, more halfway, halfway measures, uh, I, I don't think we've always prioritized the right stuff. So for example, uh, most of the schools are not open um, in the United States for in-person learning, but there are a lot of places you can still do indoor dining, right? And I like indoor dining. I got nothing against indoor dining, but it seems to be, that's a big vector. The schools are not necessarily such a big vector. So if you're going to have something like that, that's that's how I would like recalibrate it. So, so when you say as as strict as you possibly can, are you about to make the uh, the Lyman Stone case that that we needed to have camps? Well, so here's the so here's the interesting thing is that you know, uh, I think a lot of a lot of these things depend on you know what names you use for it. So in Israel, they did have what they call centralized quarantine, but they you know they did it in hotels, right? Which I think would have made sense because no one was using hotels back then anyway. So like four people who were uh, infected with the virus, uh, but who did, you know, didn't have to be hospitalized. They had these kind of Corona hotels that you would get in, go in and stay. And, you know, it didn't actually look that bad. Um, at, at the very least, we should have had something like that as an option for people, right? Whether, whether you, whether you force people to do that, and I think that there's a case for that, at the very least, you had a lot of people who, you know, maybe one person in a household gets COVID and, you know, they want to try and isolate, but the rest of the family, you know, or the other people are there in the house with them. Uh, I'm sure if there had been options where, you know, you say, look, if you want to go to this Corona hotel, if you test positive, so you don't infect your your wife and kids or your grandma that lives with you uh or your dad that lives with you here's an option you know i that would have been really good what do you think the uh what do you think we could have done differently whether it's at the presidential level governors mayors county judges judges what could we have done better in terms of communication because personally i think that has been just atrocious the the lack of empathy the scolding uh, it just, and it's become so incredibly politicized. What, I guess one question is, have you seen examples of anybody who actually handled it well, communicated well, but what, what could we learn from, you know, from the mistakes that were made on how we could communicate better to the public of, and, and actually gain trust and cre- instead of creating uh, tremendous distrust during, during a pandemic like this? Yeah. Uh, so there's a variety of things. Um, science is, is, is about changing your opinion based on new evidence, but don't lie and assume people won't notice that you lied um, because there was a greater purpose. Uh, they're going to think that you lie all the time. So, you know, the masks, the great mask flip um, that we all know, they were lying and they admitted that they were lying for a purpose. Um, so basically, Western governments uh, were saying, Actually, masks aren't useful for civilians because they don't know how to use them. There was kind of a nuanced message that they were putting out there, but really the take-home was, don't use masks. They're not useful. And, you know, there were articles about how Asians are kind of, frankly, silly, deluded from masking all the time. And I remember these articles from actually years ago. The World Health Organization has been, for whatever reason, anti-mask for years. And there's articles that basically it's hygiene theater it's, um, you know, infectious disease prevention theater. 
and I, you know, it's on NPR. Like you can listen to it, 2017. I remember, like, oh, okay, yeah, they don't. Yeah, that makes sense. I don't know. I mean, I don't know anything about it, right? And then in March, they realized, oh, actually, that's not true. Um, there's a lot of observational studies about how masks do work, and it just it logically just makes sense that if it's you know droplets are transmitting, the masks would reduce the droplet transmission. And so, okay, they flipped, and all of a sudden they became mask scolds to the point where people get yelled at if they wear a mask if they're in a park far away from other people. In terms of science communication, actually communicate the science. Don't operate in a very mercenary way to get what you want in the short term because your credibility that is you know really hard to build up once you lose it and so that has happened um, i honestly don't believe in the science a lot of the time i don't trust science a lot of the time when it comes to public health because uh they've been caught um cheating lying uh multiple times like the mask thing but also i remember very vividly in may when they were um, attacking Florida man for being on a beach. And then there was some creepy, weird grim reaper dude. And that guy do, decided to also show up at black lives matters protests in June happily. So um, these sort of uh, ideological jumps are not useful. They don't give you credibility to half the population. And if this is an infectious disease, you need the whole population to adhere. Um, you know, one of the problems that I've seen on science Twitter is um, on one day they will talk about how people in red America are subhuman animals. Um, I mean, I'm exaggerating, but I'm compressing basically. That's that's the sentiment. It's fine. They're scientists. I know they hate conservatives. That's just how it is. But then the next day they will explain, well, you know, I'm an objective scientist with expertise, so you should listen to me. And I'm just thinking they just saw that you wanted to put them in camps. They're not going to trust you. You know, I mean, it's like, oh, don't just ignore what I said yesterday. And, you know, these people are venting. They're human beings. They have beliefs. They have ideologies. But if you're a professional, you got to be a professional. And so um, that's been a serious, like, eye-opening experience for me. Yeah, and let me, let me, I totally agree with everything that Razib said. But there's also another issue, which is distinct, but I think it's also important. And it has to do with, you know, uh, scientists... Quite rightly, I, I think in general, you know, they have a, a very strict standard of evidence, right? So, uh, you know, I, I think one of the things that people would say throughout the pandemic, they would make claims about how, well, there's, there's no evidence uh, of, you know, human to human transmission of this virus, or there's no evidence of airborne transmission of this virus, or more recently, You'll have people say about the vaccines, they'll say things like, well, the vaccines have been proven uh, effective at preventing serious cases of COVID, but there's no evidence that they stop transmission, right? And I understand, you know, what their, what their thinking is, because, you know, if you're a scientist, like if there hasn't been a testing on that specific question, that's what they mean. But oftentimes I think as that makes its way into public consciousness, that gets translated into saying that, uh, you know, the the vaccine doesn't actually do anything to uh, stop transmission, or the 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 virus isn't actually transmitted airborne. And I think if you were to ask the scientists one on one. They would tell you, oh, yeah, it's almost certainly true that a vaccine that is effective at stopping people from getting serious cases of COVID is also going to be reducing the transmissibility of COVID, right? Because we know a bunch of stuff about how viruses work and from prior vaccines and antibodies and other stuff. Uh, It's just that we didn't, it's just that they didn't test for that, right? And so that's why there's no evidence for it. But that I think kind of gets lost in. Uh, that gets lost in translation and in normal circumstances, maybe that doesn't matter because you can wait. You can just say, well, we'll just wait until there's really good evidence. But one thing about a crisis is you have to be able to act based on limited information and probabilities because you can't just wait and see how it turns out and then say, oh, well, you know, yeah, that that's, that's what we should have done. Yeah. I, from a political standpoint, I would have liked to have seen, public officials, and I mean like county judges, mayors and such, just really own the fact that they don't know. 
own their own ignorance and 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 I don't mean that in a negative way, but just humbly say this is the best information we have right now, and these are the measures we're going to take. And in two weeks, I could be taking a completely different position. Uh, of course, some of that's hindsight's twenty twenty, but I think that there, even at the time, I felt like there was a lot of um, politicians scolding, being very adamant, but not really having a you know a firm grasp on. Uh, on the science. So let's fast forward to to having the vaccine now. I'm not sure how many there actually are. What do we where do we go from here? I mean we the vaccine exists, it's being produced. Is it is now are, are we having issues with the production or is it really just a matter of the rollout and the distribution of 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 the vaccine? Because obviously this is going to become a highly politicized matter of how we distribute the, the vaccine. Zard, Zard Josiah, what would you do here? Yeah. So, and you know, I feel, uh, so I should say that on one level, the speed and, you know, the development of the, of several, uh, SARS-CoV-2 vaccines has been kind of amazing, right? I think the, you know, operation warp speed and other stuff, I think, the quickest any vaccine received, you, you'll correct me, but I think the quickest any vaccine has ever been developed has been like, it's taken like four or five years. Yep. And here you've had, you know, from, from when they first, you know, got the samples to when it's completed the safety and efficacy testing, you know, you're talking about like uh, 10 months, something like that. So on one level, that's really impressive. Uh, and it's also the case that if you look at how the U.S. is doing in terms of uh, actually rolling out the vaccine, uh, we are doing better than most countries. Uh, I think I think we're number four behind. You know, Israel's doing really great. The U.K. is doing a little bit better than us. Most European countries are doing really horribly on it uh, for whatever reason. So, so, so I, I, th- that's the background. However, I will say, even with all that what we've done is not nearly enough, right? Because, you know, right now we are vaccinating less than 1 million people a day. Biden has said that he wants to do 100 million vaccinations in the first 100 days, right? So that we're, we're about on track for that. That sound, you know, that, that kind of sounds like a lot, but if you think about it, there's 330 million people in the United States. We would be like going through Christmas before we actually vaccinated everybody. And we're we're currently losing like three thousand people a day to COVID, and we're having five hundred billion dollars a month in economic damage. Right? We can't wait that long. We need to get this over and done with. Right? Um, and you know, so, some of the problems I think are kind of are baked in. Uh, I was I was shocked when I because early on. I had heard reports that one of the ways they were planning on speeding up the vaccine process is that they were going to pre-manufacture doses of the vaccine candidates, right? Uh, which makes sense, you know, because you know everything about the vaccine. You just have to, you're just trying to see, well, does it work or not? And so in the, you know, normally, normally you would say, well, let's wait until we find out that it works and then we can manufacture it. In this case, because time is of so, so the uh, of the essence, what you want to do is have just all of it ready to go, manufactured, so that once the approval is given, you can just start, you know, injecting people right away on a mass scale. And you know, we have the capacity to do this. You know, we give you know, uh, uh, you know, more than a hundred million flu vaccine shots every year. There are historical cases where you they've like, you know. Uh, uh, vaccinated, you know, millions and millions of people a day. It's 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 well within the capacity of the United States to do this. For whatever reason, we didn't do that. We had like 20 million doses, you know, and because of that, we have all sort and the supply chains weren't up and running. Uh, so because of that, we we have all sorts of like uh, questions about well, who do we prioritize? Who do we not prioritize? Um, I will say, even at this date. You know, we we've approved the FDA has approved two vaccines, the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine. Those are both both great vaccines. There is also the UK AstraZeneca vaccine, 
which is out there, uh, it's it's probably not as good as the Pfizer, the Moderna, but as with the testing, it exists, right? There are lots and lots of doses that we could use uh, to get into people's arms right now. And, you know, currently the plan is, oh, the FDA is not going to approve that until April, right? I don't understand why they're not approving it uh, tomorrow. And, you know, just trying to like aggressively move Anything you can do to speed up the manufacturing process, to speed up the distribution process, uh, to get particularly vulnerable people inoculated so we don't have several hundred thousand more dead people uh, over the course of the next few months and all the economic carnage that goes along with that. And we just kind of like sit back and, and think, well, there's nothing we could do, right? That's, that's not true. <laughs> you know, that's, that's fatalism. Uh, that is not worthy of this country. Yeah, um, all I would say is like I, I don't get why they're not fast tracking AstraZeneca. It seems like it's a way crappier, way crappier vaccine in a lot of ways, but it's also storable at almost room temperature. I mean, I think it's a little bit below room. Um, it lasts for six months. Uh, it's easy to deploy. Uh, in Britain, they are vaccinating nursing homes very quickly. Uh, people can carry it around on their bikes, uh, and so. Um, there are definite positives and upsides to these traditional classical um, vaccines. Um, I, I do know that uh, in terms of ramping up production, the AstraZeneca, these classical ones need to be cultured and they take months and stuff. So, you know, it's not like magic snap your fingers, but, uh, you know, I'm hearing things about like, oh, they'll approve it in April. And I mean, look, I don't want to talk about the deaths that we're going to have between now and April. It's going to be a lot. So I, I don't get it. I think um, the weather, you know, whatever, like I think it'll drop again. You know, as the warm weather comes, I think we're adapting, we're getting better, but still it's, there's no excuse, uh, in my opinion, for the tardiness um, in terms of how it's deployed. Um, again, you know, the CDC uh, guidelines that were come, that were originally proposed about equity and all that stuff, they're way too complicated. It reminds me of the CDC testing, testing uh, fiasco, where it's like, uh, the perfect is the enemy of the good. And even now, um, they're way too complicated and weird. I noticed that in Texas, of the risk factors to get you into 1B, your BMI, if your BMI is 30, uh, you have a risk factor. So like 40% of people in Texas have a BMI of 30 and above. So that's a lot of people. And two, if my BMI is 28, maybe I should start carb load. You know what I'm saying? I mean, this is like the incentives there. I mean, am I, am I insane here? I mean, I'm just saying like this is something you can change. Uh, relatively quickly, you can move up the BMI ladder, and all of a sudden, you get the vaccine. And you know, I—I'll tell you, I've heard plenty of stories about like how lackadaisical uh, the vaccine um, deployment has been. Where if you're pushy and you're aggressive and you work the system, you get the shots, and that makes it a lot harder for someone like me to just be chill and just wait and be in isolation and make all these sacrifices because other people aren't, you know. Um, the complication of the system is allowing there to be angles. I mean, I'll tell you guys a story. Just a friend of mine works at a medical school, got the vaccine. Um, he's not in a high risk category or anything. And um, he heard that if you show up with your spouse or your significant other, they'll give them the vaccine too. So he just showed up with his spouse and they're like, okay, yeah, we'll give it to you too. That's not fair. And when people hear stories like this, they're going to think, well, okay, like I'm going to figure out a way to just like cut in line. Cause you know, it would be nice being immune. Right. Yeah. Well, and the, the, the really worst, I mean, the worst stuff are the cases where they end up having to throw away doses because mm. they're like, Oh, well, you know, I'm sorry. There's, we, you're not in category one, a three dash six. And so, you know, we can't vaccinate you and there's no one else around to do it. So the, the, you know, they just go in the trash can. Uh, that's what really aggravates me. Well, I mean, again, it's the bureaucratic state and the following the rules. And, you know, it's like, you know, I'll let you speak, Doug, but there's a lot of you never get fired or you never get in trouble for using IBM mentality where they're just trying to cover their ass. They're not trying to save lives. They're not trying to do good. They're trying to cover their ass. So, you know, we, we've been talking a lot about, well, they should have done this differently. They should have done that differently. And, uh, you know, even if those were, even if the mistakes that were made were foreseeable at the time and whatever, you know, obviously you can't change the past. Um, 
I, I do think that it is important to try to figure out what, where the failures were, uh, not only because, you know, this is not going to be the last pandemic that we face as a nation, but even apart from that, this is not the last big challenge that we're going to face. And I think that some of the failures are indicative of like more deep seated cultural and structural problems with the United States that uh, would impede our ability to meet any big challenge, right? Uh, because of infighting and, you know, as we talked about, like the lackadaisical, uh, you know, approach to a lot of this, a lot of, a lot of C, you know, uh, CYA. I remember at some point during the pandemic, I was watching Apollo 13, the film Apollo 13. And there's a great scene in Apollo 13, which really happened, right? It's a movie based on historical events. So there's there's a part where you know they're in the astronauts are in the in the shuttle I mean in the in the spaceship is uh, they abort the mission because uh, everything goes wrong and they're they're in uh, uh, kind of the landing craft but it turns out that you know uh, the L, the air filters are are wearing out and they need to replace the system that that, that keeps carbon dioxide out of the air because uh, otherwise they're all they're all going to die right it uh, it needs to be replaced but the hookups don't work, right? Like they need to fit, like there's a square hookup and the plug is circular or something like that. So there's a scene where these astronauts at NASA, you know, they basically pour out onto a desk all this like random crap, parts of astronaut suits, just basically everything they have in the capsule. And they say, okay, look, we got to figure out a way to make the hookup work with only the stuff on this desk, right? And, and they do it. Right. They come up with something and, you know, it's probably not pretty. It's probably not hugely efficient, but it works. And the astronauts get back home. And, you know, it's kind of like I I love that scene because I think it is indicative of kind of like the American can do spirit, like whatever the challenge is, if it seems like it's impossible, no, we'll figure out we'll figure out something. And unfortunately, I feel like we have kind of lost that. I feel like. A lot, for a lot of people in America, when they're faced with a big challenge like that, like COVID, they just kind of assume that everything is foreordained, right? There's not really anything you can do. It's it's hopeless. It's impossible. The best you can do is kind of like flatten the curve. Uh, and, you know, that's bad because I think that attitude is is going to, you know, lead us in, into trouble. And, it you know, it, it is the case that um uh you know back i think back in the mid 2000s there was a shuttle explosion that i think it was the columbia disaster uh where w- the, the shuttle when it was uh lifting off there was some damage and it was there, there was something that happened and it possibly damaged the heat shield and they knew that if the heat shield was damaged and the shuttle tried to re-enter the atmosphere it would like burn up right and in that case, you know, it's only like, I guess it's like, uh, you know, 30, 40 years later in time, same organization, same country, uh, NASA made the decision that, you know, we're not even going to investigate this because if we did find out there was a problem with the heat shield, there was not, there's nothing we could have done, right? And so they just don't do anything about it. And then when the shuttle does reenter, everybody burns up and dies, right? So, you know, th- th- those are kind of like the two images in my mind that are kind of like seared in about two ways to react to a crisis situation, fatalism versus the belief that no, you know, however however hopeless the situation seems, like let's figure out a way to like get around it and do something to change the course of events. Um, and, you know, one of those I think feels a lot more hopeful to me for America, if we can get back to that, than the other one. I know, I know you like you. All, you always like to light, end on the lighter note. That's not a lighter note, but that's how I am kind of feeling and why this is an important issue to me. I, I was just about to say that this was Josiah Neely being the voice of optimism for the first time. <laughs> yeah, um, I agree with a lot of what Josiah said. Uh, one thing that I would say, and I've been pretty open about this, I'm super impressed by the miraculous power of big farm. Um, and biotechnology, um, it is incredible. A lot of scientists 
you know, did not believe that that was possible to do it this quickly and they did it. We could have probably done it even faster with challenge trials, but that's a separate discussion. I am totally underwhelmed by America's state capacity and also it, the ability of its intelligentsia to uh, <laughs> mobilize in a coherent, um, effective, as opposed to posturing fashion. Yeah, um, our elites are, uh, they are, they are decayed, decadent creatures and, um, I don't know what we're going to do about it. This is where we are. Uh, they're too busy pointing fingers at each other rather than taking responsibility. Um, they are they are people who are motivated by shame, not guilt. And I think that's the fundamental problem. Um, instead of fixing the problem, uh, they just don't want to get pinned with the problem. And that's what happened at the CDC. To some extent, I think that explains a little bit of Trump's behavior. Um, a lot of the public health authorities... You know, to be honest, that's what they're doing, too. Um, you know, they want to say it's all about Trump. Um, it's all about the behavior of these red Americans. Um, you know, one negative thing I have to say is I've been really dispirited the last year of like how, you know, the left gets all on red America's case when, you know, it's exploding in a place like North Dakota. Whereas earlier, a lot of people in red America were saying, oh, like New York City, all these dense places, like they're the ones that are going to get it and we're going to be okay. And I'm just like, you know, what is going on here? Like you're just chill because the ideologically opposing side of your country is the one bearing the brunt right now. And they both did it. They both did it. And that's a really sad commentary on this country right now. All right. Well, on that note, thank you both for being here. Um or Josiah, thank you for sitting on the other side of the virtual desk. Uh, and Razib, it's always a pleasure to have you here. Yeah, yeah. Next time it's going to be positive. Like, uh, you know, guerrilla soldiers, guerrilla human soldiers. Let's go back to that. <laughs> that's, that's how we started. That's how we started on this podcast with me as a guest. And that's how I want to end it. Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's show, we ask that you would subscribe, leave favorable reviews, and tell your friends to tune in to the Urban Cowboys.